Felix, congratulations on the new book. It is the Formations of the Modern Self, have I got that right? Formation of the Modern Self, that's it. And it is published with uh, Bloomsbury, am I right? Yeah. And so I just thought we could begin by talking about the genesis of the work. It struck me as a bit of a departure from your other research, because you've talked about phenomenology and you talk about the history of ideas. You talk about, what was your last book? Was the... Uh, Remind me of the title of your last book, Felix. I clearly way well researched here. It's on Kairos, wasn't it? That was your first book was on Kairos, and your second book was on um ah, the name of it escapes me, Felix. That's very embarrassing. The phenomenology of the Christian self. The phenomenology of the Christian self, that's the word. Great book. That's it, yeah. So do you consider this as a bit of a departure from the other work? It strikes me as a more historical work or maybe a genealogical work yeah i mean well it, it, it's kind of that's got something to do with its origins really because it, it, it was never meant i never meant to write this book that was, that's, that's, uh, that, yeah. <laughs> uh, so this was supposed to be the first chapter of another book um and the other book that i'm still writing that's not finished yet and um and and then it just kind of expanded and expanded but it's supposed to be just kind of it was supposed to be a book on the phenomenology of the self that uh, and this was supposed to be the first chapter for just kind of a historical introduction but it just it just kind of grew and grew and grew until it became a book on its own so that's kind of you know that's that's that, that, that's kind of the origin of it so maybe that's part of of what's happened but it's it it, it does link into my earlier work in, in 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 two senses i think one um it's it, what I'm trying to show is that the problem of uh, God, the phenomenology of religion that I'm working on in the phenomenology of Christian life, um, has its origins within modernity. You know, that you can trace, you know, the kind of the theological term in contemporary philo uh, French philosophy, you can trace it right back into the origins of modernity. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, that's kind of what I'm trying to do in this book, because what I do in relation to the self is I try to show that these philosophers are actually very much concerned with what we might call existential problems. You know, they're very much concerned with human happiness and the relationship of that to salvation or to some sort of Christian kind of context. And that's kind of and so that's what I was trying to kind of demonstrate in the book. So it has a distinct time period. You're you're talking about the early modern period, and you deal with some very specific philosophers. I don't think we're going to be able to talk about all of them, but you you talk in there about uh, Kant, Hume, Montaigne, Pascal, and you also go back to some of the ancient philosophy and some of the Christian philosophy, and you're kind of chasing the origins of this thing we call self. In a similar way, I think our different outcome to Charles Taylor, you know that famous book of his, the the sources of the self. And you talk about how the self emerged in the early modern period. Now, maybe we could start there. Just what became before the early modern period? So could you speak a little bit about the Christian's origins of the self? There seems to be this drama throughout the book between the Augustinian notion of the self and uh, the Pelagian notion of the self. So could perhaps you talk to that a little bit, Felix? 
Sure, sure. I mean, like, like one of one of the claims I'm trying to make in the book is that modernity starts in the late medi medieval world, right? So that that modernity didn't kind of just land from nowhere. Uh, it it was a response to a crisis of of medieval thought, right? And we see that even like the very word moderna, you know, the via moderna, it originally was a theological. Uh, term, right? It had to do with a a, a conflict or or, or a, a debate between the so-called Via Antica and the and the and the Via Moderna, right? In 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 13th century um, um, uh, medieval thought. So so I mean that's, that's the first kind of claim I'm trying to make. But then and, and then what I'm trying to say is, well, okay, in, in that kind of in, in, there, there was this kind of crisis that the uh, uh, in the medieval world, um, and and people responded to it in different ways. Um, and in terms of the relationship to the self, it was so to speak that the, the problem became okay when we're dealing we're dealing with a crisis. The the question became, and that's kind of the distinctly modern question, I think. Well, uh, not what. You know, the, the the first question isn't about the crisis itself. The question, the first question, is about the one who makes the decision relation to, in relation to the crisis, namely the self, right? So, so that turn back to the self is a turn back to the one who has to make the decision as to how to respond to the crisis that that, that we're in. And and of course, for 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 somebody raised within the Christian world, as as all of these thinkers were, the key figure. Is Augustine in this respect, right? Because with Augustine, you have this inner turn within Christianity. In a certain sense, it, it's implicit within Christian thinking anyway, right? You see it in the in the in the Christian scriptures, this kind of emphasis on the inner self as opposed to external observance. But but in Augustine, it becomes very crucial, and and because the the path to God for Augustine is one within. You 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 move you know from the external world into the inner self. And then, and then to the divine. The question then becomes, you know, what is the status of that self? Um, and for Augustine, he says two two main things about it. One is that the the, the self becomes the self we know through a free act, namely the free act of, or let me put that a little bit differently. It, it, it comes uh, to, to the self we know because of freedom, because the human being was free. It had the possibility to turn away from God, what the whole Adam and Eve story, what we call the fall, and so on, the fall into into sinfulness. And 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 Augustine claimed from that, and on the basis of his own experience of himself, that that left an indelible mark on the human self, such that the self was never able to regain its 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 kind of primordial state, the state that it was before it, it fell into sinfulness. Um, and only through divine grace could it be lifted up back into that, into that kind of primordial, uh, essential human being that God created, that was the, the, the human being that God intended it to be. And, and so that was the, so, so that's kind of the Augustinian, uh, kind of, if you like, a kind of a pessimistic view of the human self, right? That the human self is, is characteristic by powerlessness, by incapacity. And against that, you had, you, you, you had Pelagius, you know, we don't know where he came from, probably from what is now Britain, the island of Britain. Um, a, he was a, he was a, he was he was a, 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 a religious leader at his time, and and he said no no this isn't the case that, that the human being has the capacity to be good has the capacity of pleasing to God, um, and that the Christian should be without sin 
right? And the Christian has the capacity to be without sin, doesn't need divine grace. That grace is already given. He does need divine grace, yes, but that grace is already given to him or her uh, to, to achieve goodness. Um, and that's a more optimistic view, right? That the, the human being has the capacity within themselves to reach their own salvation. So, so there were, those were the two kind of conflicting views of the self, one more pessimistic, one optimistic, that I think lie at the very origins of modernity. And with regard to that drama, it's not like the drama goes away. It's like, I think that's the thesis of it in the book, that these two forces play out in different contexts across the the birth of the modern self, especially across the formation of the modern self in the early modern period. And modern philosophy itself then seems to be working on this clear distinction between an epistemological neutral subject and a moral subject, which harks back to that distinction between the Pelagian and the Augustinian. Uh, And the way you stage that opposition between the theoretical and the practical self, I think has a much longer lineage, which is your point. But in some sense, I think you're saying that that opposition is not resolved. Is that right? Yes, but but also I'm not sure it's an opposition to to, to you know for, for, you know but because I think one of the one of the things I'm trying to kind of attack in this book is a certain view of modernity that wants to say okay what we get in modernity is this kind of turn to the epistemological self with Descartes. Um, you know, becomes a foundational subject um, and that this is somehow to be kind of separated out from the the moral political uh, uh, context. And what I want to say is, no, I think that, that if you understand it in terms of happiness, uh, and I think all of these philosophers I talk about, like from Montaigne to Kant, are all very much concerned with human happiness. And if you see it in that context, the so-called epistemological self, is a response to how can human beings be happy, right? And this <clears throat> leads to the kind of the other kind of side of what I'm trying to talk about here, the the, the stoic and the and the skeptical within the self, right? That they that uh, the the epistemological kind of what what drives the epistemological is the drive for certainty, and the drive for certainty is what is going to bring happiness. And that's the conflict between the between the skeptics and the stories, right? The 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 the, uh, the the skeptics think that that certainty is is not attainable, um, and that we should live in uncertainty, um, and that's kind of where, where Montaigne really be- becomes that voice of skepticism in the modern era. That that he says, look, we, we you know you can live with uncertainty, and that's actually good. That that brings you happiness. It brings you you know you you, you live with all this diversity of different ways of being. And you have no certainty as to which is right and which is wrong, but you, you all you know is your own your own experience of these things. I'd like to talk to you about Montaigne, and I think I think I will. I mean, I don't. I'm not going to be able to talk about all these figures with you, but I definitely want to focus on on Montaigne and the role of skepticism. Now, just before we get to Montaigne, and I think there's kind of Montaigne Descartes seems to be two sides of 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 of, of this, you know, the of the Augustinian and Pelagian working out. Um, no, the, the, the the as you put it there, you're you're trying to criticize the 
you know, the, 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 the view we, we teach in philosophy 101 in some sense, you know, the, about the shift to the modern, where we get this shift from uh, a created, the created being that is created by God in the medieval period and the hierarchy of being and all that, everything that we teach in first year philosophy, uh, to the idea that the self becomes the God, that, you know, that, that the self is the self-creator or the self is understood in terms of self-authorship. Is that right? That's the context, right? I mean, it's it's that movement from, as you say, I mean, you know, the the kind of uh, dependence on God on the one hand, to a much more self-creative kind of view of the self. It's it's just I think that that it's not at all a clear-cut move, you know. And even when we get to Kant, you know, that's the end of my story uh, here. It's not at all clear-cut that we've got we we've reached a kind of a self-creating self. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about Montaigne then. And Montaigne is, well, you've alluded to it already, and it's how this notion of scepticism is taken up, because Montaigne is a great sceptic, as is Descartes. You know, you can, you don't get Descartes without <laughs> his casting a sceptical eye on the existence or non-existence of the external world. But Montaigne plays a, is a figure who plays a big part for you. And for Montaigne, as you pose it, the Montaignean self is a judging self. Right. And you have him kind of cast as a I like it because he's a proto phenomenologist. Right. And things are as they appear to him or that is a common denominator of the self. All cells start thinking that what appears to them is true. Right. And and then we can, you know, we can talk, assess the relative merits of that after the fact. But, you know, that's where we are in the world. I see a forerunner of Hegel here as well. I've been teaching Hegel this year in the phenomenology of spirit, you know, where all humans begin in self-certainty. And, you know, what you see is what you get effectively. But, in you know, that's that's just the beginning for Montaigne in the modern self. He's such an important figure because it's the scepticism he brings to that immediate world of appearance, to the immediate world of certainty, you know. And then... After that, he goes, you know, the self is generated by all of these. He's almost sort of proto-postmodernist. The self is generated out of social context by natural inclination and, and circumstance and tradition. And uh, that's how the self comes to be. So I suppose my, my question then is, is have, firstly, have I characterized Montaigne right there for you? And is there anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think, I think that is exactly where, where, where Montaigne stands, you know. And I think he's, uh, but what's so crucial about him is, is precisely to say that move from self certainty to uh, the, the kind of that kind of tranquil um, acceptance of diversity, right? You know, because like one of the crucial things he says is that that the, the big mistake is to judge the other in terms of the self, right? That's that's the, that's a fundamental mistake, right? And um, so you see it in, for example, I mean, his famous, uh, his most famous essay on cannibalism, right? Where it's like, okay, so so based on our kind of, and, and it's very well written because structurally, because basically he's he's tackling the view that the cannibals are savages, right? They're the savages and we're the ones that are civilized. And so we, we, we have the standard by which to judge them. And in the end, what you see is it, it, it gets reversed, right? He shows that we are just as much savages, if not more so we being we Europeans, as the cannibals are, right? And and so and so in other words, the um so all we have for him is our own experience. Um, but but what we have to recognize is that that experience is one perspective among a myriad of perspectives. So you would say he's a skeptic rather than a moral relativist. Oh goodness! Um, 
Well, um, I mean, in a certain sense, he's a moral relativist. I mean, uh, in the sense that, um, but but it but it's a it's it's a it's a. I, I would say he's a more moral relationalist rather than a moral relativist, if that's a term, right? In the sense that uh, he has a sense of justice, right? He has a sense of, I mean, almost in a Davidian sense, right? There's a sense of justice there that's kind of a guide, right? That 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 is is in a certain sense undeconstructible in his terms, or uh, on Derridean terms. But look, I looked in, into Matani. But but what you but what you have then is you 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 have the the the, the that the self looking at because like all these essays are like this kind of very um curious curious in the sense of guided by curiosity um exploration of this diversity of of, of, of ways of, of doing things um and 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 the recognition that not one of them can can, can claim to be the, the the fully right one you know his famous thing about you know the other side of the river, like this side of the river, I'm not allowed to kill, right? The other side of the river, if... Those guys, terrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If the king uh, <laughs> uh, orders me to do it, then I'm, I'm, I'm obliged to kill, you know? And, and that, so it's like, how, how, how does that make sense? Well, if it, it only makes sense in the, in, 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 if it's so that, you know, there, there are kind of... Um, uh, Particular, the, the particular societies, particular groups, particular communities we belong to, and they're 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 guided by logic of self and other. Is it the case then that for Montaigne, that skeptical self, it's you know it's irreducible that we we you know we find ourselves in a world full of appearance, full of traditions, customs, and opinions, and we cannot but be moral relativist, but because of that. Because that's sort of the fact of the matter, almost. You know, the fact is moral relativism, which is a slightly sort of paradoxical formulation. I think you follow me. But it's for Montaigne. An acknowledgement of that, an acceptance of that is morally productive, psychologically healthy. Is that the thought? I think so. I think so. Because, I mean, it, it gives you a sense of tolerance, right? And, and I, you know, and that's why I say there's a sense of justice going right through his work, because he's appalled by what the Europeans are doing in, say, in the Americas, you know? And, and, and he's appalled because they are doing what he says you can't do, namely they're judging the other by the self, right? So they're saying, they're different from us, therefore they're inferior to us. Therefore, we can we can treat them as we as we like, right? And and he's saying no. I mean, it it's it's and that if you want to call it moral relativism, is is morally productive in the sense that it it says no. We have to tolerate the other. We have to tolerate uh, other ways of life uh, because we have no um, um, uh, grounds done. We have no basis for uh, for 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 making the claim that that we know better than they do. So it's a it's an ethical injunction to agree to disagree, basically, kind of a way, you know, so, or you know, allowing that to be part of your psychological makeup. So the idea that sort of, in some sense, accepting uncertainty is constituted of a healthy, productive self. I guess that's the that's his contribution to the formation of the modern self, Felix. Exactly, but but I, but I would say there's a dynamic in it, right? So it's not just to agree to disagree. It's that you 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 learn from your encounter with the others, right? Um, so so and 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 you learn from how they see you, and that and and so there's so there's a dynamic there. There's a, there's a development there that that you can see working through the essays. I think once you you know when you when you see the essays in the chronological order, you can see how 
Montani um, is, is 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 sees the self as 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 learning and becoming clearer about itself precisely through its interaction with others. And then along comes Descartes. <laughs> so we should talk, we should ha- we should talk about Descartes, who is uh, another version of skepticism. I think he's another version of skepticism, and I think the move in Descartes is it's. A move from the outside to the inside and back to the outside again. So it's from, you know, he, he rejects the testimony of the senses. He rejects the testimony of the external world. This is the common story, at least. And then he finds the cajito, uh, you know, he finds clear and distinct ideas. And he goes on to the proofs of God's existence and the idea of the infinite. And then he reestablishes the foundation and he understands the self of this, uh, the, the, the outside. Now, you know, the, the 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 story we often tell about Descartes is, you know, it's, he's the guy who gave us dualism, right? You know, so internal and external world should never meet. I think you're telling a more complicated story about Descartes. And that Descartes, Descartes' skepticism, too, has a similar injunction to Monte. Descartes' skepticism is morally productive. It's, it's directed towards the good in some sense, rather than just being an epistemological claim. Have I got that right, Felix, or am I doing justice to your position? Yeah, no, absolutely, I, absolutely. But <clears throat> but I think I mean I, I think he, he differs from Montaigne in, in 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 very kind of important ways. The first thing is I think we have to read him in that context, right? Uh, like we, we have to read Descartes in term as responding to Montaigne, and and I think he 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 responds to him. I think for for him Montaigne is. Um, it's crucial that he overcomes Montaigne because what he sees is that Montaigne's view um, will un- undermine science in the way Descartes wants to develop the scientific. Um, and I mean, and, and I think that influences the different skepticisms as well. Montaigne's skepticism isn't accepting skepticism. Right? It, 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 it's accepting that we cannot get beyond our own experience of the world. And that's OK for Montaigne. That, right. that gives you diversity. That gives you um, a, a life of, that's interesting and that's, that's, you know, aesthetically pleasing. But, well, my, my, uh, Descartes comes along and, and skepticism for him is um is is anxiety producing it is um disturbing right i think this is really like when you see it in its historical context it becomes really interesting right the, if, uh, just to, to, to say a word about the ancient skeptic for a minute i mean like uh, the peronian strand of skepticism which 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 i think is 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 the is the dominant the important strand when it comes to early modernity is one that says what what happens for the skeptic is true skeptical reflection, they reach a state of aporia. They reach a state where they realize that that they can neither make a clear judgment one way or the other, and that gives them tranquility. And and you get that sense in Montaigne, right? That, that, that sense that, you know, I can never know whether my way of understanding things is the right way. It gives me a sense of tranquility for him. But Descartes, you, you read up to the end of the first meditation and into the second meditation. And, and it's what we, we often, when we teach him, we often kind of skip over. Yeah, yeah, we do indeed, Jim. <laughs> is, that, is that sense of, of, of anxiety? You know, he talks about being in a, in a whirlpool, right, at the beginning of the, uh, of the, of the second meditation. Those, those aren't just literally kind of things that he's thrown in there, you know. It's they're, they're, those descriptions of his state of mind are really important. Because what he's saying to us is, 
no, skepticism doesn't bring you tranquility. Montaigne is wrong. It doesn't give you skepticism. It doesn't bring you tranquility. It, and it brings you anxiety. It brings you uh, a, a disturbance in the soul. And so the only way to cure that and the only way to get to happiness is to find certainty, as he puts it, that Archimedean point, right? And so, and so that's and that's that's for me is crucial. Then is that is that's the guiding the the the, the guiding kind of impulse, um, and indeed, just to draw that forward a bit more further, I mean the the impulse behind science for for Descartes is not fundamentally a kind of a, a neutral, you know, wanting to know truth for truth's sake. No, it's in order to control nature, it's in order to uh, control our world in such a way that we can be happy. Um, and and he and he doesn't, because of the political context, he doesn't kind of stress the political side of that. But I think the politics is very much there as well, right? It's not just it's not just about, you know, basing our science on certainty. It's also basing our politics on that. Um, and so what you get is a very different world to Montaigne then. You get don't get a world of diversity. You get a world that is a uniform, basically, right? And, and again, right, the, the whole idea at the beginning of the of the discourse, right, of, of the of the um, architect, right, who will who will build like, you know, you, the, the city plan or whatever, who uh, you want, the city that's built by one, is going to be better than 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 built by many, um, because you you know you have unity there. You've got it based on certain. You got your foundation, and you've got your foundation exactly, exactly. Yeah, but but that but the crucial thing is right that that again uh, we tend to read that in a kind of a, a purely epistemological sense, whereas I think it's very much an ethical, very much a political, um, um, and very much about con about controlling the world and controlling nature. The other figure there who you in the book you do mention but perhaps not as he's not the biggest figure is uh this is bacon i guess francis bacon he would be a figure you know that and i can i can see the overlap there with with, with descartes at least the sort of the epistemological overlap where the the idea is to very much dominate nature to control nature to put nature towards the the uses and instruments of man basically and there's you know it's very much the idea that you it's a human-centric account of the self yeah yeah exactly i mean bacon is is within the same context you know and uh you know the whole kind of, and, and bacon is, is even more explicit right that all kind of the, the, the he uses quite violent metaphors in order to kind of to to to, to express this um, I, but it, but what's weird about that is it's almost, and that's kind of what I tried to say about Descartes as well. It's almost this kind of strange inversion of stoicism, right? Because um, um, what what the 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 the, the idea is that um, that nature, if you can control the the natural world, if you can control that that kind of um, area of uncertainty. Um, you 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 kind of widen out the power of the self, um, and and I mean the Stoics, the basic idea in Stoicism, in ancient Stoicism, and this is kind of simplifying a lot, but but basically is that that you 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 only get happiness in the domain that you have power, right? So and 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 for the Stoics, of course, you only have power within yourself, right? You so so you only have power within your own emotional response to the world. You don't have power in anything outside. 
what, what I think you see happening in Descartes, you see it happening in Bacon, is that is that, that stoicism becomes, so to speak, extended, the self becomes extended out. So it's kind of like, well, no, we can control, if we can control the natural world, then we can have happiness uh, within that world because we're able to, uh, uh, to, to, to determine it and we're able to, uh, uh, to, to uh, kind of um, eliminate uh, those kind of, you know, sway, uh, what slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that cause us unhappiness. Now, the other philosophers that we need to talk about uh, is Spinoza and Hume. You spend a lot of time uh, talking about, I mean, you devote an entire chapter to talking about Spinoza and Hume together. And that's, for starters, to me, that's an interesting, putting those two together is an interesting, because we, you know, again, when we teach philosophy in first year, it's usually, you know, Spinoza, Leibniz, the rationalist, Locke and Hume, the empiricist, and they don't they disagree with each other, you know. Yeah, so it's Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz on one side, uh, vying against uh, Locke and uh, Hume and Adam Smith on the other side, and uh, along comes Kant and brings them all together. That's the story we tell. So let's maybe start with that. Like, why do you, why do you put these two to, together? Usually they're not put together. So where do they fit in with your story of the self, I'm I'm guessing it's going to be something to do with skepticism, especially with with, with Hume. But uh, we'll we'll take things from there, Felix. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, well, first of all, I, I I'm trying to kind of get away from that whole history, right? I'm trying to get away from the from the empiricist rationalist kind of thing. Um, and not that there's not a certain truth to it. Obviously, there is, but uh, but you know, it, it's very much a kind of a a post-Kantian kind of reading back into that tradition. You know, it's kind of like Kant unites them. Well, okay, there must be something that had to get united, right? So we go back and we read them in those terms. But I, but I think if you if you if you look at them in their own terms, they were always in dialogue with one another, right? There's always this discourse happening back and forth. Um and um and 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 Spinoza um, I think was quite important for Hume, right? I mean Hume doesn't acknowledge it because of course Spinoza in the uh, in the early uh, 18th century was, was you know, a very um, uh, ambiguous figure, right? So you, you didn't want to be associated with Spinoza. So, so and, uh, and, and indeed, uh, Hume kind of attacks him directly. But I think, I think that's kind of subterfuge, really, on, on Hume's part. But in any case, um, the, oh, where, where, where do I see the connection? I see a lot of connections between them. I mean, in, in relation, it, it's almost, I mean, I, I begin at the beginning saying, you know, one is a philosopher of expression, one is a philosopher of impression, right? And it's like they're almost mirror opposites of one another. You know, I think if you read Spinoza saying, okay, take the Spinoza view right of the world, then make the claim that the only thing we can know is through, the, through our senses, right? You get you talking very kind of, in very kind of basic terms. But if you, if, you, if you take away the third form of knowledge that for Spinoza is key, right? The third form of knowledge is one where reason kind of uh, intuits the eternal structure of the world. If you, if you, may, if you say that's impossible, then I think in a, that you, you're you're thrown back into a kind of a, uh, into into a human world. So a world where yes, we live in a in the deterministic world, right? But we're not. Uh, the, but that determinism is one we cannot justify except through through custom and and so on. We 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 live in a world where we experience passions and and those and those passions. How do we how do we rec- how do we kind of um, uh, negotiate them? Well we try to make them as calm as possible, which is like the Humean uh, approach, right? I mean, the, 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 we, we make the, the, the passions as calm as possible in order that thereby to bring us to, to, to bring us into a state of some sort of tranquility. 
which again is is Spinoza's aim, right? Spinoza wants the 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 sense of happiness for Spinoza is that we end up in a in a realm of tranquility. Except for Spinoza, that happens through you know uh, through this kind of uh, as I say this third form of knowledge, this this purely rational kind of intuitive knowledge, which which Hume thinks is impossible. And in Hume, then. Well, I really like what you do with Hume in this, because Hume is, you know, he's, 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 he's a great figure of the Scottish Enlightenment, and he's usually cast as a figure who brings philosophy back down to earth. You know, it's, like you say, it's the impressions. You know, all I can know is what's immediately apparent to me. So I can, yeah, I can, I can now hear the the echo of Montaigne there as well. Now, the 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 with, with Hume, there's a, there's an interesting move going on because, of course, Hume says that there's there's no there's a the self is is not there's no self really isn't there for humor there's no self behind the curtain there's no there's nothing backstage ordering all this flux of impressions like i, f- I forget the you know the famous quote from hume that this the self is a bundle of perceptions uh, and that they all bypass each other in inconceivable rapidity and flux i mean he put it obviously a lot more eloquent than that but that, that is the thought right but i like what you do with hume so your hume is a bit more of a phenomenologist he's more sort of more like Husserl, he's he's very much obviously he's very much important for the the modern inductive and experimental idea. You know the, the you know the idea that we that knowledge is all knowledge is derived from the senses and the senses uh, are are the foundation of induction and experimentation and observation and the modern scientific method basically. But for you, I mean that, that you do acknowledge that that's there. But for you, Hume is more concerned with the how we live in the world, the phenomenological. Uh, so, you know, Hume tests philosophical claims against the observation of experience as it occurs. So there's no there's no abstraction there, right? You know, there's no ab- abstraction of the f- scientific method. And that self is a very, very different type of self uh, for Hume. And so I'm wondering then, like, how, how then do you... Because Hume also is a sort of a liberatory figure for you, I think. You know, he tries to... By returning to experience, we can liberate the self in some way. So we liberate the self of the self. Is that right? Yeah, no, I think that, that that's a good way of putting it. I mean, like, first of all, just in terms of phenomenology, absolutely. I mean, Husserl would say to his students, you know, read Hume. Husserl wasn't one for, you know, sending his students to the history of philosophy that much. But but Hume, for him, from beginning to end, was an important philosopher. And I think I think Husserl sees something very important in Hume that that is, as I say, kind of proto-phenomenological. I mean, if I can start at the beginning with your first point about the self, you're absolutely right, except that when you go from the first to the second book of the treatise, it's so interesting, right? The first book of the treatise is precisely as you say, right? There, like I look into myself, I find nothing but perceptions, there is no self and so on, right? Then I, then suddenly in the second uh, uh, um, treatise, self's all over the place, right? Imagination, but, uh, yeah. Well, not just imagination, but in terms of the passions, right? In terms of like he starts out right. talking about passions, right? Talking about pride and so on. and And you can only understand that. In terms of a self, right? I mean, if, if if I'm feeling pride, what am I feeling pride about? I'm feeling pride about either myself or something that's associated with me. And so, and so that that and, and this is where I think Spinoza and Hume are very interesting to see together because I think what what's going on there is that what we get in Hume, as we do in Spinoza, is a, is a relational concept of the self. Right. So so what Hume is denying is that there's a self in the kind of substantial way in which uh, Descartes understood it. Right. Yeah, there's no homunculus there. Right. Either. Exactly. Exactly. There is no homunculus. But 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 that's not to say that the notion of the self is somehow ridiculous or, or meaningless. 
Uh, no, but, it, but, but what it is, is it's only in relation to others. It's only in that relational context that we make sense of the self, right? So it's not at all surprising that Hume brings in this notion of the self when he's talking about the passions in, in a way, as I said, very similar to, um, uh, to, 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 to Spinoza. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think Hume is a very kind of liberating figure here. He he, he says he's a skeptic. He 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 uh, he brings that Montagnian skepticism uh, uh, forward. Um, and again, not in not in this not in the way that Descartes does, right? It's not as this anxiety-producing thing, but rather is precisely liberating, right? It's precisely understanding uh, that 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 the self. Uh, through its skepticism, recognizes that all all it can really talk about is its own experience. But again, in talking about experience, it does experience itself. Itself, it doesn't experience itself in the theoretical way that we we get it from somebody like Descartes. Right. So the, for Hume, then the wisdom of the self is found in. I think you put it in these terms. Even it's found in relation, found in communication, found in dialogue with the everyday, with sort of, well, the vulgar, would I, even if I want to use those, I want to use that in a non-pejorative sense, that term, you know, that the point of, for Hume, and that's why it's so interesting, the point of philosophical ex- reflection, as he does, and he too retreats it to the self, like, you know, it's the, it's the impressions, you know, they, I get you, the, the impressions m- make an imprint on, on the self, <laughs> they, leave, they, they leave a trace, but what's healthy then for a self is to habituate itself to the forms of thinking, you know, that and the patterns that it finds in its everyday life. And that's why I suppose he's uh, he's in that common sense philosophical tradition. Or he's, he, he has some he has some skin in the game, as they say. Absolutely. I mean, like like he's always like like Hume's always kind of thinking about this kind of uh, move from the you know from the philosophical to, as you say to the everyday, right? And 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 it's, and it's interesting as well. He thinks of it in terms of kind of like boredom and 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 pleasure and so on, right? You know, it's kind of like that, that you you get you know you want to you know go out and have drinks with your your buddies and you know and and uh, have fun and flirt and all of these things. You want to do that. But then it kind of gets boring, right? And 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 there's a sense of the self that needs to reflect, right? But that's and that philosophical reflection, but that philosophical reflection as well, it gets too much. And so so Hume is very kind of um again, I mean he's very concrete in this terms, right? He's very much talking about, you know, and that's part of part of kind of the context I'm trying to say in this book is that, and we get it very clearly in Hume, but I think we get it in all of them that um, there's two kind of related ways in which the self comes into these philosophers. One is their kind of reflections upon what the self is. But the other is the kind of the operational or implied concept of the self, right? That there's, a, there's an implied notion of the self that's working through their texts. Um, I think you can see that right from, you know, Montaigne, you can see it in, in Descartes and so on, so on, Pascal and so on, but you can, see, but in, in Hume, it kind of becomes quite explicit, I think, that kind of um, uh, move from the, um, from the self that is thinking, right, that is reflecting, that is living, um, to the self as the kind of the, um, the concept which he develops about what it is to be a self. Yeah, and that makes sense to me. I mean, I, I see, and I don't think this is too, you know, I don't think this is, I'm I'm reading Edmund Burke a lot at the moment, you know, and, uh, you know, they were contemporaries, as far as I recall, Hume and Burke, and the, that there is that sense, I mean, you can call it conservative view life of that, that where skepticism 
is directed towards the limitations of what a self can and cannot be. It's kind of almost like the finitude of the self. That's one of Hume's famous messages, isn't it? Like reason is the slave of the passions. You know, we can reason, but we have to understand it within the domains of the emotions and the passions. And there is, within that, I think this is one of your claims as well, that's a normative claim as well. It's an epistemological claim. You know, that's how it is, but that's also how it ought to be. You know, the, the self exists in this flux of impressions, but it also strives to to sustain itself, to maintain itself, to persevere, despite all those, all that alteration and change and historical fortune. There's things and hours of outrageous fortune. We keep coming back to Shakespeare. That's, you know, one of the great modern <laughs> accounts of the self. Absolutely. And, but, but, but precisely, and I, I mean, it's something I try to do is kind of, you know, take that, that notion of the, you know, the, the stage, right, from, from, from Shakespeare that he, of course, takes them from, from the stories that sense that the world is a state right but we all we all are parts and we're all kind of within this kind of this drama and and again i mean for, for for hume it's the passions because like in the end because you know we have skin in the game as you say right and the skin in the game is our, our need our, our seeking after happiness in the end right and 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 so you know and, and, and that's and for hume wants to say well reason only works in that context. Reason doesn't give us the end, right? Reason doesn't give us the goal. It, it, it's, it's our way of kind of working towards that goal. And what's really interesting, just to put that in, because it, it often gets kind of passed over in Hume, is his, how he understands animals in that respect, right? And how he understands the animal as not being, funda- we're not being fundamentally different from the animal in that respect, right? That animals too, have that kind of seeking after what what what, what will give them pleasure and give them uh, 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 peace and so on um, and and work in a way that's at least analogous to our reasoning in order to reach that and and, and that that and that I think is really interesting in Hume right that it that it that he really tries to make us concrete but also tries to kind of get rid of these kind of um, uh, the, the 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 sense of um, of our of, of human being as being somehow essentially distinct from from other beings in nature. Right. So the human being shares its its nature with nature, which distinguishes them, I suppose, from Descartes, or Descartes and Bacon. I'm hearing a lot of uh, yeah. I think you make a convincing argument because I'm hearing a lot of the ancient messages in here. There's some very old questions in here, like you know, there's you know, the one and the many. How can there be change? And you know, where there is change, how do we find stability and cop- continuity or the same and difference so all these questions are are playing themselves out again and where else does that play itself out in the head more so than in Kant right so I, I thought I'd give you an opportunity because I, I, I realize we've, we've packed a lot in here Felix and it's, it's, it's a testament to how, how good the book is because there's so much there's so much in there to to talk about but I just want to give you a to- uh, an opportunity to talk about Kant and where where does he fit in this in this story you know and I think the way you do it, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's a story of, it's kind of a conversion story, really, isn't it? It's about inner conversion and uh, inner conversion in conjunction with outer cooperation. I think that's how you put it. And it's uh, and what binds that together is not so much Kant's critique, of, you know, the first critique where he talks about, you know, the transcendental aesthetic and all that, but more his moral philosophy. It's a kind of a commit, common commitment to the good. That's the big significant moment in Kant's thesis of the self. And, you know, he kind of, he internalizes that skepticism in order to establish, well, the kingdom of inns, I guess. 
Um, absolutely. I mean, I think I think one of the problems with reading Kant is that, uh, and and indeed, I think it's a problem reading a lot of the modern philosophers, is that, that we cherry pick. We cherry pick what we think are the crucial works, right? So with Descartes, for example, we we in the English speaking world, not so much in the French speaking world, kind of ignore the passions of the soul for the most part, right? Um, and and Descartes becomes the Descartes of the meditations. Similarly, with with, with Kant, right? I mean, we we'll, we'll kind of we we look at the first critique. And then after that, it becomes, well, yeah, okay, it's, it's kind of interesting, but it's really not crucial. Or then, you know, some of some, well, the second critique is important, but then like the critique of judgment is <laughs> gone off the rails. And, uh, you know, and, and whatever about, you know, religion within the bounds of reason, of mere reason, then he's kind of like, you know, clearly gone senile and uh, we can ignore that, right? And, and you know, I'm, 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 I'm ex you know, people, some commentators explicitly do question whether he's really got, all the marbles together when he's writing the, the religion book at the end, right? Which I think is 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 really problematic way of reading any philosopher, particularly Kant, because what it, what crucial to, to to Kant is to recognize that the critiques were simply laying the groundwork for what was for, for, for the metaphysics he wants to write, right? I mean, Kant is Kant in the end wants to give us a post-critical -critical metaphysics. And, you know, he'll talk about the critical age as the as the age, so to speak, of transition, right? It's a, it's a transition to enlightenment, and enlight and enlightenment is not post-metaphysical in the way we we tend to think of it now. It's rather a a a, a, a critical metaphysics, right? It, it's a metaphysics that 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 is that develops. You know, having done the, the the critical work that he that he he has already done in the critiques, so so that I think is really that to me is fundamental to read to 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 reading Kant. And so the Kant that I kind of see here is not really the Kant that kind of marries the empiricist and the and the and the and the and the, and the rationalist. To me, it's the Kant who uh, gives us an account of how to be a self within the world where reason is finite um but where uh we we have a world that is that works in terms of natural laws um and that is created by a divine creator who uh, who unifies or brings together uh the 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 moral and the natural the, the laws of morality and and the laws of the natural world um and that's you know, and that, that and, and that, as I see it, is kind of like the end of this story. Is that is that attempt that he gives us, and, I, and that's why you know the the I, I spend I have two chapters on Kant, but the second one is almost fully on that religion book because I think it's 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 actually where he kind of gives us a summing up of this. And like as you say, the Kingdom of Ends then is this kind of is is his kind of historical account where you know we we work towards or we come towards this. This this world, but this world, this this end world, and this brings us back to 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 Augustine, is one we can only reach through the grace of God, right? And 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 what's you know, what, what I think is really interesting is like I think Kant is really the last philosopher um, who writes about grace, uh, so to speak, without blushing, right? I mean, he really he really thinks <laughs> that philosophically we can we we and, and with all the caveats, right, that we can't. We, you know, we 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 can't talk about it. And we don't know that we don't even know there's such a thing as grace. We don't even know there's such a thing as God, right? Uh, in that 
narrow sense of knowledge. Um, but our whole metaphysics, our whole philosophy depends upon a moral fate. And that moral fate is in that God who is in the end, for Kant, the only guarantor of our moral goodness, our moral salvation, right? Because for, for Kant, you know, when we, and his rigorism and morality is such that he wants to say, we can never be fully justified once we transgress the moral law, right? It's got, the, the way I try to explain it when I teach this is that for, for Kant, we have no currency to pay back um, what we are our misdeeds, right? Because what we ought to do is fo is follow the moral law, um, and and so we can't we can't so to speak do that excessively. We simply do that, right? So if as you say, it's a conversion story. But if from 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 the the conversion to the moral law to the end of one's life, one one simply never transgresses the moral law. One still hasn't paid back all the all the transgressions <laughs> one did before, right? because you have no currency. You've, you've literally got no money to do it because because you you you've simply done what you were supposed to do, nothing more. So how can you pay back for your transgressions of the past? And the only he thinks uh, he says this quite explicitly that the only thing is kind of a hope in the in the in the, in the grace of God. The grace of God will somehow you know you know recoup that that transgression. And this is a very Augustinian moment. And again, I don't think this is recognized enough. This is a very Augustinian moment in 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 in, in Kant, right? It, it, you know, to go back to the beginning of our conversation, it's almost if he, you know, he's a Pelagian right up till this, till kind of like he's almost at the end, and then he has to become an Augustinian because only only that appeal to divine grace will allow him to complete the story, complete the story of the self. As that self that is finally saved, and so and that's my my picture of of, of of Kant, and like I mean, it's 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 not a popular picture of Kant at all, right? It's, but but it, but if you read his if you read his works, you read his three critiques, right? It's not by accident that he ends up with God in each of the three of them, right? That's not an accident that that, that that that's the case, and it's not an accident that he that the final work he's working on, uh, that he well the final work he publishes is is, is on religion because I, because again like you know if you think of of his three questions right the question what can I hope for is is the last and in a sense that the least well motivated right I mean if you understand Kant in the in the traditional way we understand them, right? We understand why he wants to know what wants to understand about knowledge. We want we we understand why he wants to know about about goodness, about what we ought to do. But why hope? Why does hope come in there? It's because I think it's he he's he's looking for that kind of that final kind of metaphysical unity of practice and of theory, of the internal and the external, of the mechanical and the purposeful. And he can only get that by hope in in a divine being that he cannot, whose existence he cannot prove, but who has to be the orientation of his philosophical trajectory. I think we've been talking for about an hour now, so just under an hour. So I thought we perhaps should bring things to a close. But I'm thinking, have you have any thoughts on the self that comes after that modern that modern period? You know, um, I mean, I was reading. Robert Brandom's book on Hegel recently and I mean he basically says we think of the postmodern period happened like you know in 1945 you know roughly from there on Brandom you know says actually no it was, it was the modern the postmodern period starts with with Hegel so I'm thinking I would bring you know what are your thoughts on that you know on, on the self ahead what does the self look like after Kant or have you had any thoughts of that like what does the self look like for Hegel what does it look like for Marx or the economic self and so on 
that, 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 that's the difficult question, right? I mean, I my 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 my, my sense of this is that the kind of the the story of the self that I try to chart, right? This kind of um, I call it like it's four faces of the self, right? That the kind of the stoic, the skeptic, the Augustinian, the Palladian, that kind of becomes into a certain unity in uh, in, in Kant. I think that unity be begins to be clipped away at after Kant, right? I mean, that 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 um, that kind of way in which he understands the self in relation to that kind of the finitude and so on first gets attacked, obviously, by Schelling and 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 Hegel uh, in 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 their uh, kind of in their their attempt to kind of like overcome the the the, the critical. Uh, philosophy, or, or at least the subjectivism, the critical subjectivism of 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 the Kant, of of, of Kant, um, and then obviously, right in in terms of the postmodern period, uh, there's almost kind of a returning back to that kind of Montanian self, right? I think it, it, you you mentioned before that Montanian seems very kind of like postmodern. I think it's I think you're right. I mean, I think that kind of fragmented kind of self that we get within within postmodernity is, is is very much kind of appealing back to that. To me, uh, this postmodern uh, kind of era is one in which we, we kind of dissect that modern self, right? That said, modern self gets kind of dissected, gets gets uh, broken up, gets 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 reconceptualized. But I don't see anything I don't think a there's a fundamental change there. I think it's more kind of a a, 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 ref a critical reflection upon upon modernity. From, from, from my point of view, what we really need now to think about is the era that begins in 1945 or or or, or possibly before, but but certainly with uh, at the latest in 1945 with the, the, the with Hiroshima um, and 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 that's kind of you know what we now begin to call the Anthropocene. If the the modern self is being formed in relation to and a response to the crisis of the of the um, of the medieval world, then I think we are very much in the time of the crisis of the modern world. To take just one example, right? I mean, the 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 kind of as I read it, that kind of stoic kind of move in Descartes, and and as you say in Bacon as well, where we control the na nature through controlling ourselves, right? This kind of aesthetic move back into the self that then is kind of moves out into a control of nature, and the and 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 that on the one hand, and then the way in which that kind of gets spelled out in that division between nature and culture, nature and society that Bruno Latour, for example, has very clearly deconstructed. That at the latest, in 1945, uh, we, we, we recognize that that's no longer, that's no longer viable. That, that concept of the self in relation to nature is no longer viable. And so just to finish the point, I think, so So to me, uh, the, 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 the question, certainly the question I'm battling with at the moment is how do we understand the self today? How do we understand the self in terms of the Anthropocene, right? How do we understand the self in relation to nature? And indeed, I want to say in relation to the divine, but that's another story. One last thought there, Felix. The question of technology, does that come in there? I mean, you are a Heideggerian in training and in, in writing, you know, so is the, is, the, is the contemporary self then a technological self or does that fit into your, the Agostini and the Pelagian model that you've uh, constructed? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think um, it is, um, but, but, but again, I mean, it's, it's um, that the, 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 the uh, how we understand that then today and how 
the moderns understand it is going to be different, right? I mean, because, and I think that's Heidegger's big kind of insight, that the the, the presupposition of modernity is, is a kind of an instrumentalized view of technology, right? Where the technological becomes that which allows us to control nature. And so it becomes kind of our, uh, the instrument of the self in respect to the non-self in respect to the natural world. But of course, uh, as Heidegger very clearly sees, right, that uh, what technology does, in fact, it, it, is it, it reconceptualizes what it is to be, including what it is to be a human being. And uh, and we see that so clearly today, right? I mean, it, it, these utopian dreams, and again, I mean, the utopian dreams that we see already in Descartes of that somehow through science we get to immortality, right? And 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 in Descartes' view, right, you get it through some sort of scientific methodology that, that gives you the way to, um, uh, uh, of uh, medically controlling uh, things such that you can put off debt to, to you know, indefinitely, or at least for, for a long period. Now, now it's kind of like, you know, well, we'll, 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 um, Put ourselves up in the cloud, right? We'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll. Uh, Transhumanist uh, self, yeah. Exactly. We, we will somehow be able to uh, find immortality uh, through through technologies, whether it's through the cloud or, or, or other means. And it's kind of like, and um, but, but what's interesting about that is, right? Again, it's that shift of the utopia, right? The utopian dream on the one hand, and Descartes, it's very much an instrumental way, right? We through through our use of technology, we instrumentalize in such a way that we can protect ourselves from from death. In the in the transhuman way, uh, understanding it, it we kind of merge with our technology in order to uh, in order to reach that immortality. And I'm just reading at the moment. Um, uh, Gunter Anders, you know, who I, I I would really recommend to anybody to read. Uh, it's just um, uh, unfortunately so little of him has been translated, uh, but he, but he has, uh, so, some has. But um, actually, Babbitt Babbitt has a really good book out uh, with Bloomsbury on on him just recently. But uh, but but Anders, uh, you know, is really good on, on talking about this, right? He he talks about our shame in in relation to our technology, right? That we that we we feel ashamed in terms of our technology, right? Because we 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 judge our technology as somehow superior to us, right? That that that, that you know, and you, you you know, we talk about the the human factor, right? The human factor is a flaw, right? And so so if we could just merge with this technology, right? We would we would be we we would the self is the aberration, then yeah. Yeah, well, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, the human self becomes an aberration, right? Since we have to somehow transcend, right? Uh, but, but, but again, I mean, I think that's it, this is a, a a residue, a leftover from from modernity. But it, but what it is is it's 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 a it's that that, that it's that strange kind of thing that happens in history, right? That that uh, that modern notion of the self gets kind of transformed and transmuted into this into this kind of uh, transhumanist kind of view of of this kind of technological or technologialized uh, self. I think that's a good place to end it. Yeah, we've gone, we've we've gone, we've moved from early Christianity to the transhumanist robotic self and the posthumanist self. So, Felix, just before you go, so thanks very much for joining us. Where is the book available? The formation of the modern self or the formation of the self? Well, I, I, you know, from from all your from Amazon or or from from any of the the normal kind of uh, online. Um, um, 
uh, retailers and and I'm sure from you know uh, other retailers as well I'm, I'm I don't keep I'm, I haven't kept up to date on to exactly where it's uh, where it's on the shelves but it's out there and it, it just got published uh, with Bloomsbury uh, in January yeah I'll put a link up in the show notes so, so thanks again Felix that was absolutely fantastic thank you Pat that was great uh, lots of fun Thank you.